Good morning, Red Sea Catholic Radio listeners. This is not the voice you were expecting to hear on the radio this morning, this first week of December. Thaddeus Romanski, your general manager, I'm filling in for your usual first week of the month roundup host, Deacon Mike Beauvais, because he's out being a deacon today. He is assisting at a funeral this morning. Uh, I wasn't told who the the soul uh, is whose soul is being committed to to heaven through the funeral, but we pray for whomever that person is. Dennis, our producer. Howdy. Do you happen to have that information to hand? I know it's a longtime prisoner at St. Anthony's Catholic okay, Church. So we, so we pray for the family and for the for the, the soul of the faithful departed person. Yeah. I'm here this morning excited to be in the host chair. I know I've got a really competent producer in your president, Dennis Maka, assisting me, and I'm excited to be joined by Zach Harris, who I'll tell you a little bit more about in just a minute. But remember, you're listening to Red Sea Catholic Radio, religious education for the domestic church, KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. And you can call in this morning because we're live anytime, 85-LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. And Dennis, the fact that all those different stations and all those different listening areas are under the same umbrella of Red Sea Catholic Radio is a nice springboard to talk about something that happened on Facebook just yesterday. Indeed. We have a wonderful administrative coordinator by the name of Caitlin Brightwell, who is uh, just a master at a lot of things that we tried multiple times to to merge a couple of Facebook pages that we had. And, you know, we uh, are trying to streamline everything as we go. And so rather than having a separate Red Sea Catholic Radio page for Central Texas and one separate for the Brazos Valley here. We combined them all into our whole network page because we were finding a lot of duplication of of posts. And so we now have one Facebook page with over 1,200 likes. If you haven't liked it yet, go to Red-C Radio and uh, click the like button. Mm -hmm. And get on there and just keep up with us on Facebook and uh, like what we post. Don't dislike what we post. Just only like it. That's the only thing you can do. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I do want to say a shout out to Caitlin, who, who, like I said, did a marvelous job. And so she's monitoring the show in the other room and can't really do anything about what I say about her, which is kind of nice. And so the funny thing is, is that uh, she's from Mason, Texas, which is way out west, almost like to New Mexico kind of thing. And uh, she claims to be from Central Texas. So, you know, if you guys ever want to send a message to Caitlin at RedSeaRadio.org from the Central Texas area and kind of help her with her geography, feel free to do so. She she claims to be from Central Texas, which is Mason, but, you know. Come on, let's let's get real here. <laughs> but speaking of our guest in the studio, who I actually don't know where Zach Harris is from, we've got a visitor to St. Mary's Catholic Center this morning, a Aggie, one-time Aggie, now in formation with the Apostles of the Interior Light. Zach, welcome in. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and your time here at at St. Mary's Catholic Center. Great. Uh, So I actually grew up in Dallas, so I'm I'm a Texan by birth. Okay. Uh, Born and raised. Proud of that. Uh, I came here to to Texas A&M in 2013 as a graduate student in aerospace engineering. Uh, I was in a PhD program, actually, and was here for about two oh, years. Wow! Yeah, and during that time, I discerned that that God was calling me to religious life, 
um, and specifically to my community, the apostles of the interior life. Holy smokes. I did not know this before going into the interview, folks. We just ran into Zach yesterday when he was getting his tour um, because you're here to celebrate the upcoming permanent vows of Sharice Klecker. Correct. Talk talk a little bit about that, then we'll come back to your story. Okay, so this upcoming Saturday, uh, one of the young women in formation with our sisters, uh, who's also an Aggie, she'll be um, making promises of poverty, chastity, and obedience and becoming a a full-fledged sister uh, with our sister community. Uh, and so she was, she, our time here actually overlapped a little bit. Oh. Uh, and then in, I think, 2015, she went to mm. Rome. So she's been there for about four years, uh, studying there in Rome and going through formation with our sisters. Terrific. And she returns, has returned here this week to uh, to make her vows. Okay, interesting connection I have to Sharice. She is actually from the same hometown as my oh. wife. Cool, Howitzville. Howitzville, Texas. Yep, yep. the best that? little town in all of Texas, in case my mother-in-law is listening. I, <laughs> I said that. There you go. So who, um, who are the Apostles of the Interior Life? Talk about that real quickly. Great. So we're a, a small, relatively new uh, religious community. We have both sisters and then a priestly branch. Uh, we were founded um, by a priest of the Diocese of Rome, Father Salvatore Scorza, uh, he'll actually turn 92, I think, on Sunday. Uh, no, on Monday. Uh, and so he... Uh, Buon compleanno. That's right. That's right. Good Italian. Um, so he's a, a priest of Rome, and he, since he was a, a young seminarian, had this desire to found um, some sort of community. He thought it, it would be a, a community of priests to really care for the spiritual lives of of people and focus their time, their ministry, uh, very specifically on on spiritual formation and evangelization. Um, so he, uh, as I said, first thought it would be a priestly community, but ended up at, at, that our sisters came first. He met a young woman from California uh, in the the late uh, the late seventies, and that led to her moving to Rome and beginning the community there. And then the uh, the priestly branch of the community grew out of our sisters' ministry. Actually. Oh, interesting. That's mm-hmm. not. That's not always the typical way things happen. Exactly. Yeah. So we came out of the ministry of our sisters, mostly on college campuses okay. um, here in, in the United States. So in 2007, uh, the priestly branch of the community was founded. Okay. So let's get back to the college campus in your in your life. That must Great. have been an incredible leap of faith to go from a PhD program, mm-hmm. which I went through my myself. Um, so I know what the rigors of that is like, and to sure. leave what what that means to go and enter religious life. Can you give us a little bit more yeah. window into that? Um, so when I when I showed up here at at A and M, I was I was already kind of starting to think about religious life a little bit, but I had uh, my own idea was that I would join some sort of community that like ran universities and uh-huh. and kind of clung to that idea for a while. But really, what was kind of the the two key things were uh, beginning spiritual direction. Uh, I was in spiritual direction with one of our sisters here at the center uh, for a couple years, uh, and through that, she helped me start beginning daily daily mental prayer. Um, so just spending silent time mm-hmm. with the Lord, reflecting mm-hmm. on the scriptures, just reflecting on His Word, the truth of our faith, um, and allowing Him to to transform my life. Um, and it was really through those two things, daily mental prayer and spiritual direction, that I came to know myself a lot more deeply uh, and realized... Uh, and what I really wanted to do was to be an apostle of the interior life. That's who I who I was, who God had created me to be. Um, That's a beautiful story. I'm sure there's there's many more twists and turns and and revelations mm-hmm. if we had more time to talk. 
Um, but I think it's really, it's really beautiful. You, you sit in front of me, you're a living example of that. There is not a conflict between, uh, faith and science or faith and reason. You came Amen. here to study aerospace engineering and you were thinking already about, eh, maybe I want to be a priest who can possibly teach in this area at a, at a university, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't think that's the Lord's plan at this point. <laughs> brought me in a different direction, but that's not. that's where I was. That's probably where I was not. for a while, and that was a was an important part of my journey, uh, kind of in in the lead up that before coming here of realizing faith and reason don't don't conflict, but they actually enrich one another and go together. Yeah, um, that was a, yeah an important part of my own journey. Wonderful, Zach. Well, I think uh, I want to pre- I want to say thank you for for kind of jumping in the the interview seat. And You're welcome. any parting last words for our listeners, uh, how they can learn more about the apostles or how they can support you in your, your journey through formation. Great. Um, I mean, first of all, of course, I'd ask for your prayers, both for myself and my own journey of formation and, and for our community. Um, if you want to, you know, learn a little bit more about us, you can visit our website at, uh, apostlesusa.org, um, or our sister's website at apostlesofil.com, I think. Okay. Um, and if you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us at 11 a.m. Saturday morning for Sharice's uh, vows and mass profession. Here at St. Mary's Catholic Center in College Station. That's right. Okay, yeah. so, um, Zach, thank you so much, and your, your story is a great transition into our Saint of the Day segment, which today's saint is the, it's the Feast of St. John Damascene, or St. John of Damascus. He's a doctor of the Church. He lived uh, from about A.D. 676 to about A.D. 749, so that's about 1,300 years ago that he was walking around on this earth. That's almost a 1,000 years before the Protestant Revolution, which seems ages ago to, to many of us, okay? And that's right in the midst of the first explosion of Islam out of the Arabian Peninsula, uh, beginning in the in the 600s, so he's living in a time of tremendous um, upheaval and change. And uh, I think the connection to you, Zach, is that you know, he was born into an Arab Christian family in modern day Syria, mm-hmm. and he followed his grandfather and his father into service of the Muslim caliph of mm-hmm. the area. He was a court official. It was a very you know secure. Um, position it probably accorded him some some level of um, security to maybe practice his his faith uh, at least in private. Um, but he felt a calling to abandon everything, and he abandoned that life and went to join the monastery in uh, Jerusalem, the monastery of Mar Sabah, to become a monk and a priest and a mm-hmm. scholar. Wow. Um, so today. This morning, I have a, to wrap up, I have a passage from the writings of St. John, and I want you to take heart, listeners, that these are the words of a priest, like I say, written about 1,300 years ago, and they themselves are addressed to unbelief. The Church is always under duress. She's always battling the principalities and powers of this world. Be not afraid. Quote, for... Just as all things whatsoever God made, he made by the operation of the Holy Spirit, so also it is by the operation of the Spirit that these things are done which surpass nature and cannot be discerned except by faith alone. How shall this be done to me? asked the Blessed Virgin, because I know not man. 
The archangel Gabriel answered, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. And now you ask how the bread becomes the body of Christ, and the wine and water the blood of Christ. And I tell you that the Holy Spirit comes down and works these things which are beyond description and understanding. St. John Damascene, pray Pray for for us. us. And so I think this is an excellent uh, springboard into our guest. In the second part of the show, that's going to be Professor Stephen Bullivant coming all the way from across the pond in England. He's the director of the Benedict XVI Center for Religion and Society at St. Mary's University in Twickenham, England. (laughs) Say, Say that twice. He has doctorates in theology and sociology, And I think those come together powerfully in the book we're going to be discussing, Mass Exodus, Catholic Disaffiliation in Britain and America Since Vatican II, uh, out in late 2019 from Oxford University Press. How about those chops? Amazing. So uh, this came across my radar as we had been preparing to uh, talk with Taylor Marshall about his book, Infiltration, back in uh, September, which has been on a lot of people's radar. And uh, I think this is another really important and useful look at the crisis that our church is facing in these years. But again, like I said, St. John Damascene lived himself through a time of crisis and change and upheaval, and be not afraid. Hang in there. Yeah, so if people want to call us on the uh, on the show here, they can talk directly to our guest, to Thaddeus, and to me at 85LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855 855- Six eight three seven three three two. Call anytime, and uh, the phone lines are all open at eighty five Love Red Sea eight five five six eight three seven three three two. And I guess as we draw here to the close, Dennis, it's worthwhile to remind folks that um, you know, as it is the season of Advent, we do have all the penance times listed on our website. We've got a couple PSAs running on the air, um, so you can hear and know when you can go to the Sacrament of Confession during this time of Advent. Okay, we'll be back on the other side of the break with Professor Stephen Bullivant to talk about his book, Mass Exodus. Okay, and welcome back to Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio, religious education for the domestic church. Again, you're listening in the Brazos Valley to us on 88.5 FM, KEDC. You're catching us in Waco, 98.3 FM, KYAR, and over in the Holy Land of Texas, as I like to say, Palestine, 107.9 FM, KINF. And you can call in this morning to speak with our distinguished guest all the way from England, Professor Stephen Bullivant at 85LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. Good evening, Professor Bullivant. Um, really happy to talk with you. Pleased that you could make time for us. Um, we're talking about your new book, relatively new book. came out uh, yep. earlier this year, Mass Exodus, 
Catholic Disaffiliation in Britain and America Since Vatican II. It's out with Oxford University Press. But I want to start with having you tell the listeners about being a Catholic in England, especially a scholar who went the other way and crossed the Tiber from atheism to Catholicism. Yeah. So, I mean, the I might talk about it later, but the kind of the default setting in Britain, certainly increasingly over the past 50, 60, 70 years, and very much now, is kind of no religion. Although it's fairly common to be baptized or, you know, have some very vague kind of cultural attachment or association. Now, I wasn't baptized. You got, you know, we have prayer in schools, or at least we used to, you know, we did a kind of a classic nativity play at kind of a public school. Um, But, you know, no serious Christian input growing up. And as a teenager, I was pretty obnoxious atheist by the time I got to kind of 14, 15, 16. Um, I apologized to a girl from the the Evangelical Christian Union uh, several years later for being so horrible. <laughs> Good for uh, you. And then uh, I went to in 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 Britain. It's, you you often go to for the last two years of high school. So seventeen, eighteen, you often go to a what's called a sixth form college, which is basically like the last two years of high school before you go to college. Okay. And I didn't want to go to the Catholic one in in my town now the town i was brought up in in the northwest is a very kind of historically catholic uh part of the country okay but i didn't want to go to the catholic one i didn't know particularly know much about catholics but i think you know i figured if they're you know religious then you know they'll be stupid if not evil as well <laughs> uh but and this should have uh this should have um you know uh alerted me to something uh that was the only one in the town it's quite a big town uh, that did philosophy. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I went there, and it was a lovely place. Uh, I did philosophy. Went off to university in Oxford originally to do archaeology and ancient history, but a few weeks in, wanted to change major. And at Oxford, you can't just do philosophy, which is what I wanted to do. You had to do it with like physics or maths or you know something I wasn't qualified to do it with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured, well, all right. Um, I'll do it with theology because there was no sp- specific requirements, uh, kind of prerequisites. Okay. And uh, with the plan that, you know, I'll do the minimum theology, you know, and go off and be a philosopher. But of course, it was the first time I'd ever read the Gospels. It was the first time I'd ever kind of really been confronted with Christianity. I kind of got in with the wrong crowd of Dominicans. <laughs> <laughs> And then a very long story that's kind of both intellectual and social and all sorts of stuff come together. Sure. And then I'm halfway through a doctorate in Catholic dogmatic theology um, when I decide that, well, you know, I kind of think and believe and write Catholic theology. So, I, you know, it's probably a good time to do something about it. So I was baptized in Rome in 2008. Wow. What a journey. Yeah, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a lot more there to the story, but um, yeah, I mean it's, it's a lot. It was a lot more of a boring story, you know. You sort of say it in like you know two minutes, and it sounds quite dramatic. If you know you live it over about ten, yeah, then it didn't quite feel uh, you know. And there's so there's fits and starts and two steps forward and one step back, and I'm sure that all, yeah, exactly. all of that. But you know, looking back, um, you know, you can 
it was obvious I was heading in a certain direction, you know, mm-hmm. in retrospect, mm-hmm. but I didn't quite always appreciate at the time. Okay. So let me, let me use that then to, to, to ask you, did any of your journey uh, have an influence on you wanting to write this book, or did that strictly come out of your theology and sociology um, training? Well, I think it... You know, how much kind, of you is in this book is kind of what I'm yeah, asking. Yeah, well, you know, it, you know, I've gone the other way. So, you know, it's kind of, it's not my story. Yeah. Uh, you know, the book focuses mainly on people who were brought up Catholic, who now, for the most part, no longer even identify as Catholic. And I've kind of come completely the opposite direction. Right. But given that, you know, I became Catholic in 2008, you know, my wife then became Catholic two years later, uh, having been a kind of a vaguely lapsed Anglican kind of Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. Um, and as someone with an interest in Catholicism, and particularly my first doctorate was on the theology of kind of engagement with unbelief and secularity and that kind of stuff in, in Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Then because I had this sociological kind of, you know, side hustle going on as well, then it was all new evangelization was always going to be a topic that was going to interest me personally and professionally. Yeah. So coming from where I did intellectually and kind of, you know, as a Catholic and obviously coming from the kind of very secular wider world in which most people are brought up, then the kind of the first part of thinking about thinking through how the church ought to be kind of you know evangelizing in this territory obviously the first step in that is kind of working out how we got here in the first place yeah um so you know it's not a happy tale most of that book um but you know the now i've written it Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can move on to look at the future, which is which is always nice. A more hopeful book is is one of the ones I'm working on now. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we'll we'll look forward to that appearing for sure. But let's do talk about this book. This is Mass Exodus by Stephen Bullivant. That's who our guest is this morning uh, here stateside. Um, let's consider the title next. I think it's a really uh, good title because uh, it obviously speaks to mass exodus. We've we've had a mass exodus of Catholics. Uh, leaving the church, and that's certainly what it speaks to. Um, but I think you're hinting at uh, a different stress on the words, too, of a mass exodus, that yeah, something with yeah, the liturgy yeah. is maybe having something to do with this exodus. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite that I came up with a title and then decided, you know worked out a book to fit, but mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I was quite pleased with the title, and I kept hoping that no one else would kind of come out with a similar book, you know, with the same title. Right, right. Uh, here's what, here's no, what I'm I mean, curious about, too. Uh, fit this into your answer. Yeah. Are there some biblical overtones of the Exodus in that title, of what the Exodus was for the um, the people of Israel? May, if If not so, that's okay. No, no, not explicit. I mean, you know, obviously lurking in the background of all sorts of stuff there might be, but that's certainly not something I was ever thinking in terms of framing the book and coming up with the title. Um, But you're right that, you know, the liturgical changes play a pivotal role in the narrative of the book. But partly what I wanted to do with the book was to 
if you like, navigate between, you know, there's different camps, there's different kind of, uh, you know, suggestions as to what's gone wrong. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a camp that in very broad terms says, well, it was something that either that happened at the council in, in the mid 60s or the council as a whole or something, the council's to blame. Mm-hmm. And it all went downhill after then. There's another camp that says, no, the council was great, but there was either a stifling of the council or a, a crackdown after the council or a thwarting or a, a something that we can blame the decline on. And then there's a whole other story that if you read kind of mainstream social historians, uh, religious historians in Britain, that they might talk about the Catholic story um, as kind of, you know, local denominational colour, but they don't seem to think there's a specific Catholic story to tell. You can just talk about across the board, secularisation and religious decline. Um, And I, you know, frankly, I think there's, there's merits to all those camps. Mm-hmm. So and what I wanted to do with the book was to really tackle some of the, you know, sort of the kind of culture war talking point, you know, wranglings around the legacy of the council, especially 50 years later. Yeah. And to try and make a constructive, rigorous uh, proposal um, to try and to try and tell a more nuanced three-dimensional story really yeah so go talk a little bit more about those um those ideas of disaffiliation which is in the subtitle but you also use this term lapsation and i I think that one kind of leads into the other correct they're they're different phenomena but they are connected yeah i mean disaffiliation isn't the the catchiest of words but basically what we mean there is people who were used to identify as something and now no longer do. So the, you know, cradle Catholics in America, for example, a third of cradle Catholics now, you know, don't even tick the Catholic box on surveys. Um, in Britain, it's about half of cradle Catholics. Um, and, and in Britain, the vast majority of kind of ex-Catholics, you know, sacramentally, they're obviously still Catholic and always will be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly in terms of their subjective uh feeling of identity they no longer feel catholic um you know the vast majority of those are now nons you know they tick the no religion box in america it's about a half of the third so about a sixth of cradle catholics now identify as having no religion and that proportion is growing um so when i talk about disaffiliation what we mean is that these aren't just people who no longer you know go to mass they're not just people who aren't quite sure if they believe everything that the church teaches these are people who have kind of got so distant from the church, if they were ever that close to begin with, that they no longer even tick the box. And and this is particularly important in the Catholic case, mm-hmm. precisely because for a very long time we've had this sense that, you know, Catholicism is something kind of ethnic and tribal and cultural, as well as being religious. And all the and they're not separate things, you know, it's bound up in the same kind of subcultural world. Very much so. You know, it's, and, and there was always this idea that, that, you know, people may not go to mass anymore, but they're still, you know, they're still 
Catholic, you know, the once a Catholic, always a Catholic is a phrase you often hear. Or, you know, even if you're an atheist, you'll be a Catholic atheist. And, Can know, I jump in with a personal anecdote real quick? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my father, who, who is still a practicing Catholic, he often will say, <laughs> I don't know if I think of myself as an Italian-American because I'm a Catholic or if I think of myself as a Catholic because I'm an Italian-American. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you know, if you're brought up in Boston or Chicago, or one of these big Irish communities, which is precisely the kind of Catholicism in, in Preston, where I was brought up, Liverpool, Preston, yeah. inner city Manchester, these kind of big Irish Catholic immigrant working class communities. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and the trouble is, is that that kind of Catholic kind of that dose of Catholicism doesn't persist across generations. So it may have been true in a previous generation that these were people who'd been kind of like so formed by Catholicism that it would always stay with them, you know, whether they liked it or not. Mm -hmm. um, but for their children, you know, they haven't had a big enough dose of Catholicism growing up for it to mean anything. So what what we see and you see this very often is you've got kind of like in Britain, it's most pronounced because we've had kind of the, the declines come much quicker. But, you know, you've got baby boomers born after the Second World War who, you know, by the time they kind of hit young adulthood, everything was up in the air. There's a lot of changes in social life happening anyway. They were brought up very different to their parents. And a good proportion of those may not practice regularly, but they probably brought their kids up to, you know, go to the Catholic school and be baptized and that kind of thing. But what we find is that their kids and now their kids' kids, it, it kind of means nothing. So you've got this growing proportion of, you know, baptized Catholics who haven't had this kind of real deeply ingraining Catholic imprint mm -hmm. that was kind of taken for granted in previous generations. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So the fact that we're getting to a point where, you know, a large proportion of kind of people who say they were brought up Catholic now no longer even tick the box seems to me to be a real uh, watershed. Yes. Sea change. You're, you're listening to Red Sea Catholic Radio, 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, 98.3 KYAR in Central Texas and 107.9 FM in Palestine. This is Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Thaddeus Romanski, filling in for Deacon Mike, and I'm talking to Professor Stephen Bullivan about his his book, Mass Exodus, and we are uh, kind of going through the sociological side of things, but, but as a historian myself, I think that my favorite parts of the book, even though it is a dim tale, as you said, first of all, that that lost world that you, you recreate so well, that preconciliar uh, Catholic milieu— in Britain yeah. and in the United States, and you you you've got these terms, um, credibility enhancing displays and social network theory and plausibility structures. But yeah. but give us the give us the cash value of those things and some some examples that would resonate with the 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 non specialists. What yeah. what what was that preconciliar world? What did it look like? Yeah. So basically, the the kind of the classic. Catholic world, which, you know, we think of kind of 50s Catholic neighborhoods, but right. they were already, you know, they were already eroding by the time we get to the 1950s. This is a, a critical moment in the book. Yes. Um, but these are 
I mean, the classic examples are major cities like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, Chicago, Boston, areas of New York that are these ethnic Catholic neighborhoods where, you know, if you look at a map of Philadelphia from 1950, there's a Catholic church every second block. And not only are there like 100 Catholic churches in kind of, you know, downtown Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. but there's another 50 Italian Catholic churches, German Catholic churches, Polish, Hungarian, um, these these ethnic parishes as well. And and so those worlds tended to be working class neighborhoods where people walked were well, within walking distance not only their own church but probably about you know 10 others mm-hmm. you all your neighbors were probably catholic your whole social life probably revolved around the catholic parish mm-hmm. if you weren't at mass you would be missed mm-hmm. you would likely see not just the priest but the priests and sisters from the parish and the parish school on probably a daily basis yep They'd just be around and they'd, and they'd be dressed as priests and sisters. Yep. Um, your whole kind of sporting life, your drama clubs, your, you know, your dad would be, you know, he'd be a, in Britain, a Catenian, in America, a Knight of Columbus, because he wouldn't be able to join the Shriners or the Freemasons or the Rotarians or That's anything right. because... Catholics weren't welcome. That's right. um, you know, this is an era, especially in the 19th century, when these are parishes are founded, where, you know, there was a serious anti-Catholic prejudice, um, which, of course, makes these communities turn inwards on themselves. You know, it was very common. You know, n- no Irish need apply is the famous case in, in America. Right. In Britain, up into the 40s and 50s, it was quite common to see pubs with no dogs, no blacks, no Irish signs outside. Um, and, and so what you, what you've really got is you've got these kind of Catholic worlds, these subcultural Catholic worlds where, you know, it was possible to grow up in the outskirts of Pittsburgh. And I quoted at one point in the book, you know, someone who grew, you know, until they were about 12 thought that everyone in the world was Polish. Yes. Not, not, you know, not even from Pittsburgh, but Polish Catholics. That was just like the only people they'd ever met, the only people they'd ever encountered. Right. Um, and it's easy to romanticize this world. And and you know, the reason, you know, the reason why these uh communities were breaking down was partly because, you know, there were slums and tenements and, you know, people wanted to move out of them. There was a lot of suburbanization, there was a lot of urban renewal um in Britain after the war you get kind of it wasn't always done very well but you get on the one hand suburbanization but you also get these kind of you know new tower blocks that break up these communities um so for all sorts of reasons you you get people uh getting cars you get increasing affluence you get the television which of course suddenly a gives you something else to do of an evening than go and uh you know go to the rosary club with other four you know 400 other mothers mm-hmm. um but it also brings a whole other world into your living room. Now, for some people, that's Fulton Sheen coming into your living room for the first time, if you're a Protestant. But it also, it's Billy Graham coming into your front room for the first time. And, and probably more importantly for everyone, it's I Love Lucy coming into the front room 
for the first time. Right. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff that's gradually eroding this world anyway. But even so, it's a very rich, devotionally um, committed, weird world, kind of, you know, um, a world of spiritual warfare and saints and novenas and um, kind of weird folk customs, you know, about, you know, different saints and, you know, what you do with the statues if you want to find a husband or you need to find a house. And and if you read the memoirs of, the, of kind of baby boomers, particularly brought up in this world who've left, you know, they talk about how they feel that they've been formed in this whole other world, um, you know, that has its own language, its own shibboleths, its own sort of, you know, um, code words even, uh, that's very difficult to get rid of. And, and the same is true if you talk to kind of Mormons now who've been brought up in rural Utah, you know, they'll say that, well, I, you know, I, even though I'm not Mormon now, you know, it, it, it's always with you, you know, you kind of feel ethnically Mormon. And, you know, the same would be true of certain Jewish communities. So it's not just a Catholic thing. Um, and it's not just an urban northeast thing. I mean, you know, the I mean, it's I say it's not far from where you are, but of course, it's hundreds and hundreds of miles. But if you know, I once drove from Oklahoma City to Akima, which is a very small town in Oklahoma, and you pass, you know, the National Shrine of Our Lady of Chester Hover or something. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and it's like, well, oh, no, no, of, of, of the Infant of Prague. That's what it is. And it's like, well, why is that there? And it's because of the town that was founded by Bohemian uh you know immigrants in the 19th century yeah um which was a catholic town you know they probably spoke czech um yes. you know into the 20th century you know if if you're brought up in wisconsin you know you've got this whole kind of polish world of kielbasa sausages and polka music mm -hmm. um that that's gone um and with it as well as a lot of other stuff that was happening the kind of the the natural uh you know close-knit structures that just make catholicism a part of everyday life and taken for granted okay Stephen. so let's let's move now to this world that i think you're you're what you're saying about it is it had this sense of permanence and you you keep coming back to that in the in the book that these these ethnic Catholic communities, these working class Catholic um, ghettos, if you if you want to use that term, yep. had this sense of permanence from generation to generation and, and, and habits and ways of life that were unchanging. And then you throw in now the Second Vatican Council and talk about what you say in the book about the the changes upon changes upon changes. And that gets us to the mass exodus part of the, of the title, I think. And, yeah. I mean, so things were, things were already changing and the, and, and the, the baby boom generation, are the absolute watershed generation here. And, and, you know, they get a lot of press. I mean, all the okay boomer stuff, but they're actually the kind of, they're, they're kind of more sinned against than sinning in this story because, you know, they they grow up in uh, a world that's already passing away because you've got suburbanization, you've got all the things I've just talked about. Yep. But they come of age at this critical moment that we now call emerging adulthood. And we recognize that this is this kind of critical moment in young adult 
religious, social, personal formation and identity construction, or however you want to think about it. People find themselves, right? Um, and at the very moment that this kind of huge generation, this kind of, you know, bumper crop of young adults comes of age, the earliest ones are born in like 1946. Mm-hmm. The moment when they hit 18, um, everything changes. The liturgy changes. The dress of priests and nuns, or whether they even stay priests or nuns. You know, like your parish priest for years, you know, suddenly runs off with the, the sister from, you know, the convent down the road. Um, you know, fish on Fridays, which like people really did just kind of think you know had been there since the time of jesus kind of you know um was kind of you know went from one week to the next um you know suddenly people were saying oh the rosary is an outdated superstition people were moving the tabernacle out of the way you know there was a lot of kind of enthusiasm um and in retrospect overcorrection and kind of chaos in the way that the reforms ended up being implemented concretely. Mm-hmm. Talk about and, and talk what, about Vernacular Sunday. That's a concrete yeah, so, example. So Vernacular Sunday, November, um, it was, I think, November the 30th was the Sunday. I think that's right. Um, uh, 1964, that was the, the day that the council, not, well, out of the council, it was decreed that um, we would have, you know, mass, in English or, you know, German or whatever. Um, And, you know, this was a big deal. It was something that, you know, the liturgical movement had been kind of experimenting with for some time. Um, And people were quite excited. You know, people, many people didn't like it, but, you know, probably most people did. But, a, the mass chain, like, you know, you used to be able to take take for granted that mass was pretty much the same wherever you went, from parish to parish, from country to country, from century to century, at least that's how it felt. Um, and then suddenly, you know, from one week to the next, it changes. And and the real critical thing, I think, is that it, it didn't, we had this idea that it changed kind of once, and it was a shock. But it, it kept changing week after week, something yeah. new would be different, parish to parish would be different, you exactly. know, the music would be different. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the outlay of the church would be different. Um, and then of course, you know, vernacular Sunday in 1964, isn't the mass we have now. That's right. So it's kind of a, a partially translated version of what we now call the extraordinary form, which still has much of the features that, you know, you, you still have in the extraordinary form, like the, the prayers at the foot of the altar and the last gospel. Right. So it, 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 it's very much a kind of partially English version of the old mass. And then in 1969, you get yet another new version of the mass, which is much more different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you get another period of constant tinkering, you know, until we kind of, until by the seventies, you get this kind of, you know, there's this kind of new normal that, you know, you, you kind of know that a normal parish probably has three or four different masses and there'll be a certain kind of range that you might get from place to place. But, you know, there's a certain kind of middle of the road kind of folk vigil mass. There's a kind of a middle of the road kind of hymn sandwich, 11 a.m. high mass. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real critical thing is that a it was chaotic for lots of people anyway. 
But the baby boomers, and again, there's lots of them, have this pe- they have this period anyway at, at that age when they're going to be, you know, not in one place at any one time. They, you know, is we know that people kind of drift away from religious practice and, and tend to come back, or they used to when they settle down. Um, but because a, you know, other changes, people were far more likely to be moving away from home. People were far more likely to go further for college and then, you know, not move back. People were far more likely to meet someone who they'd then marry later if they did get married who wasn't catholic because of all the other things going on there's a kind of a 10-year period when they've not been in any one parish for time to gradually acclimatize to the new normal mm-hmm. so when they might have come back it's a very different world the mass certainly isn't as it used to be and their only memory of what the mass used to be like is kind of their memory of being a bored teenager um and in the 70s and 80s, this is precisely the moment when, you know, you start getting these big mega churches specifically designed to attract lapsed Catholics living in the suburbs, young professionals. And, you know, the, the classic case is Willow Creek in uh, the outskirts of Chicago that was specifically designed to hoover up former Catholics who, you know, felt lost. Felt lost, yeah, but but were kind of seeking and kind of felt it was important for the kids to have some kind of church type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this kind of this whole, you know. So I guess the argument in the book, is, and and also, you know, we've not even talked about humana vitae, but you know, this creates a. It's a big shock. People are expecting change. People are told to expect change. You know, young married couples are told well there's no point you know trying to sort out this kind of rhythm method that doesn't even work type of thing um you know the pope's got to change it anyway in a couple of years or you know next week or something um and then he doesn't and you've got all these people who've kind of staked their reputations on second guessing him who either double down or you get bishops who kind of know that it's not going to go down well and know they've got half the clergy you know kind of going to revolt one way or the other um who kind of you know know they have to say something that's affirmative but you know want to give themselves a you know a kind of enough kind of you know wiggle room around the edges you then get this kind of fracturing of authority in the church because yes. oh, in the past it may have been that you know people didn't follow the church teaching but they knew what the teaching was and they probably felt guilty about not following it after the fallout of humana vitae can i jump in real quick and ask a question that will follows on what you're about to say is it fair to say that the changes in the liturgy and all that chaos from the liturgy then that starts to impact the way people understand why they do why they keep up the devotional life that they do and why do we even have these devotions and why should i do these devotions and then that does that kind of lead into, well, why do I maintain these certain, you know, moral uh, boundaries in my life? Are those up for grabs, too? Is that is that all no, kind of, no, of a piece? I, I think that's right, because A, it's, an, it's the 1960s when everything seems up for grabs anyway, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, the, the church exists in the world, and, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on there anyway— but precisely all this stuff that, you know, until the kind of the day before yesterday, people thought was just kind of like not even something you could think about questioning. You know, it just wasn't on the table to be discussed. 
It's just how it was. It's just how it was. How the Mass is, you know, the Rosary, Mary, praying to saints. Suddenly, purgatory, you know, like, suddenly um, everything feels like it's up for grabs. And kind of probably the one thing that a good proportion of Catholic, lay normal Catholics wanted, you know, no one was petitioning to get rid of fish on Fridays. No, no one was petitioning for felt banners, you know. Right. Um, But, you know, for all sorts of reasons, lots of women wanted to control their families, but, you know, birth control. And suddenly it was kind of the glimmer of hope that the church could permit them. And then kind of the one thing that didn't change uh, was the teaching on contraception and precisely because everything else had changed i think it that made that a much bigger and more traumatic deal uh you know that it happened in the 1930s when the, the church Cassie Canubi, yeah yeah and and there's no kind of fallout to Casti Canubi. right and you know if you read Casti Canubi, it's it's harsh <laughs> you know Paul VI says the same thing, but he says it a lot nicer and a lot more gently. And, you know, he's aware that not everyone will be able to follow this. And, you know, but precisely because everything else can change and people were told to expect this change, um, it becomes a massive thing. And it also means that, you know, from parish to parish, from, you know, from the same confessional, you know, from, you know, five to nine to five past nine, when, you know, the priests change. You know, something can either be a mortal sin or something that's up to you to decide. Um, I think that has a very undermining effect on all sorts of givenness of, of the package. Okay, as we uh, are coming to the end of our time, we have about six minutes. Again, you're listening to Red Sea oh. Catholic Radio with our guest, Professor Stephen Bullivant, author of Mass Exodus. Uh, we're on... in the Brazos Valley, 98.3 in Central Texas, and 107.9 in Palestine. I'm going to quote you a little bit from the end of your your book. You're you're really really, uh, non-controversial epilogue, did the council fail? (laughs) You're not taking on a big question there at all. Uh, But, uh, quote, It is difficult to imagine a scenario in which the council's reforms are not causally related to the very significant decline in mass going among British and American Catholics and ultimately to the high and growing levels of Catholic disaffiliation. And then you jump over and really put a fine point on it and you say, on the basis of 50 years evidence from Britain and America, one has to say that the reforms failed. So you're, yeah. you're coming down on the side of Vatican II, whether it's the implementation or however you want to parse that you're saying it's a failure and you yeah and for a very specific reason and that's that the council is explicitly seeking to address problems which were already developing it's it knows the modern world's a problem mm-hmm. it knows lapsation's a problem mm-hmm. it knows the young people in the working class are you know drifting away and it specifically calls a council, and I go into the reasons why I think, you know, what we now call the new evangelization is a, a, absolutely what the council is about right. before we have the term. And it's specifically trying to, you know, 
refit the church to meet these challenges. And it it doesn't succeed. And I'm not saying that, you know, if, if everything had stayed the same, then everything would have been great because it, it, it wouldn't have been. Um, because the crumbling was already underway. Yeah, it was already underway. But I, I, I do think that the, the precise way in which the change happened, um, the chaos that ensued and also the timing. And, you know, they couldn't have predicted the timing. But, you know, it was probably the worst possible moment to have all this change is when you've got these baby boomers who are a huge influential generation that are going to have this huge influence over the next two generations come of age like that in Britain and America, at least. I mean, obviously it's not the same worldwide, um, but it, it was it was the worst possible timing. If you had to pick a moment in the past 500 years, um, you know, to, to make some pastoral changes. Not a great you, you say in the book. No. Uh, the Catholics are becoming more and more like everyone else during during this time period at the very time that everyone else is becoming less traditional, less religiously observant, uh, less rooted to place. And so that's no, absolutely. And, and incredibly you know, disruptive. Exactly. You know, you get this kind of intentional mainstreaming of Catholicism, yes. this kind of coming out of the ghetto, if you like. Yes. Um, trying to be less weird actually. Yes. Um, and it's precisely the moment, like almost the exact pinpoint moment when the wider society in Britain, in America, in all sorts of places starts to kind of irrevocably so far kind of drift further and further from kind of uh, Christian roots. Yes. Um, and, and, and you just think what happens in the 60s and early 70s where you get liberal liberalization of divorce, um, you get Roe v. Wade, yep. you get... Um, or you get the beginnings of, uh, you know, the gay rights movement. So at, at precisely the moment when the, the the wider culture is becoming kind of more and more problematic, um, you know, for Catholic teaching and vice versa, um, the church kind of breaks down the, you know, the walls. Um, the protective walls in, in many the ways. The protective walls, yeah, and, and they, they're always crumbling uh, you know i'm you know I'm, I'm not you know talking the book about the amish or you know something like this kind of you know there's the, the different ways to do this to kind of retreat into a kind of bunker community which isn't ever going to be the way but you know people are talking about benedict option and sorts of other ways of kind of recreating the kinds of community the kinds of plausibility structure to use the jargon um the kind of subcultures um that that don't happen naturally anymore. Yeah. I, I often, I really believe that it, it has to, one of the first steps is kind of accepting that I'm going to have to live in a subculture. Like kind of Absolutely. making that, making that kind of leap that I'm going to accept living in a, living in a subculture rather than in the mainstream and, and then dealing with what comes from that. But as we, as we close out our interview, 20 seconds, uh, Stephen, what we should take away from the book? Oh God! Uh, now that we it's know, what... there's, there's no easy, uh, there's no silver bullet in explaining what went wrong, essentially. And uh, there's uh, read the book for the details. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, we'll get you back. We'll get you back again for when you come out with the hopeful story. It's a pleasure. I mean, I'd love to come along. The uh, best donut I ever had was in College Station.
<laughs> Perfect. Okay, so once again, we were talking with Professor Stephen Bullivan. Uh, he's the director of the Benedict XVI Center at St. Mary's University in Twickenham, England. Did I say that right? You did. Okay. Um, he's the author of Mass Exodus, Catholic Disaffiliation in Britain and America since Vatican II. It's out with Oxford University Press. He's also a fellow with the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, catch him there, and we'll get you back on in the future. Thank you so much, Stephen. Genuine pleasure. God bless. All right. Bye now. Have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Christmas. <laughs> you too. All right. We loved it. We loved having that conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I think if you enjoyed Taylor Marshall's book, um, this has a lot, I think, a lot more uh, historical substance and research to it, and it's worth checking out and reading and listening to this story that uh, Professor Bullivant tells it it was a fun read I got a lot out of it Red Sea Catholic radio it's been a great day remember uh, to tune in every Wednesday 11 a.m.